0: are you looking for a scholarly guide that concisely presents the latest research conclusions on effective teaching then join us for this episode of the teaching lab in which dr cynthia brame of vanderbilt university tells us all about her latest book science teaching essentials short guides to good practice hello everyone and welcome to the teaching lab i am your host angela bauer Each week, I will keep you current on the latest findings regarding teaching and learning innovations that foster deep learning and inclusivity in your classrooms. Whether you are currently a busy STEM professor or an aspiring academic, this convenient on-the-go professional development podcast promises to keep you at the top of your teaching game. Welcome, Dr. Brain, to the teaching lab. Oh,
1: thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: It's so great to have you with us. I'm hoping you can start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your position, your institutional affiliation, your research interests.
1: Absolutely. So, I'm an associate director at the Center for Teaching at Vanderbilt University, which is in Nashville, Tennessee, and I'm also a senior lecturer in biological sciences. The bulk of my work is spent doing faculty development. A lot of that work is done with uh, STEM faculty, so I'm the liaison to the sciences and engineering departments and the school of nursing at Vanderbilt, but I do also do work across the university. So for example, I lead our junior faculty teaching fellows program. Oh, okay. Yeah, I teach pretty high enrollment biochemistry course, biological sciences students. Every year I teach a small seminar in the spring to first year students. That's some of my work. Okay,
0: great. Just out of curiosity, what is the topic of your first year seminar?
1: So Vanderbilt recently adopted a requirement that's called immersion. So all students are going to complete an immersion experience. And so this is an introduction to immersion. We call it So you wanna find a cure, an introduction to immersive research experiences in the biosciences. We know a ton of our students come in wanting to do research. Mm -hmm. Some of them know exactly how to get into research labs. Some of them don't really know how to do it and feel overwhelmed. What we hope to do is to level that playing field a little bit and help students know more about what's going on in research labs, become more familiar with how scientists build knowledge in research labs, and to be better equipped to enter a research lab and integrate into it well.
0: Okay. Awesome. Sounds really fun. Well, we are here today to talk about your new book, uh, which is entitled Science Teaching Essentials, Short Guides to Good Practice, and it's published by Academic Press. and. I loved the book, and the first thing I want to do is get copies of it for all the faculty in my department. It's this really concise summary of the research out there about best practices, but then it also provides really practical ways to implement it within the classroom. So I I just think it's wonderful, not only for junior faculty, but for faculty also who've been in the trenches for a long time and maybe need a, a refresher about best practice. So tell us about your impetus for writing the book.
1: It's the kind of book that I would have liked to have had when I started teaching.
0: What I hope it does is to give readers
1: the kind of support that they can take and adapt to their own context. Each chapter takes a common teaching challenge, such as creating an inclusive classroom, or incorporating active learning, or writing a test. It describes principles that can be used to guide your thinking about it, and then it provides practical steps that have been shown to be effective in college science classes. I made sure the chapters were short, right? Uh, People are busy, and so I wanted to make sure that we had a concise summary for each of these things so people would have a chance to read it, get something useful at it, and go on and move on with what they had to do next. So
0: that's my impetus. Okay, great. I love the fact also that you can just pick and choose. So if you know if you're particularly interested in inclusivity, you can read that chapter, and your understanding of that chapter is not dependent on your knowledge of prior chapters. Although that was probably a bad example because I think that's the first chapter. But <laughs> that's so <right>. I mean. <laughs> okay. So how did you choose the chapter topics for your book?
1: Well, I really thought about common problems that people face when they're teaching, both from my own experience as a teacher. So I've been teaching for quite a while now, you know, I thought about what are key pieces to setting up a course, what are the teaching practices that you can really use in every class, what are common pedagogies that those of us who are in science use a lot, then that real bugaboo assessment, like how do we, how do we fairly and transparently um, determine what our students have learned, so I just thought about those common categories of problems and then specific examples within each of those and those were those were the chapters.
0: Great, how did you intend for the book to be used by your readers? I guess what I'm trying to get at with this question is are you targeting junior faculty or?
1: That's an interesting question. I imagine that the book will have probably the greatest use among junior faculty because the first time you're designing a course or the first time that you're writing a test or developing a rubric, it can feel really overwhelming. And so I hope that this book can provide a lot of support in those areas. But I also hope that, as you suggested earlier, that more senior faculty can use it to prompt conversations with each other and to think about areas where they might want to make adaptations. For example, I was completely unfamiliar with the idea of test-enhanced learning until just a few years ago. And when I discovered that, I thought, wow, this really changes the way I talk to my students about what they need to do to learn. And also it changes some of my teaching practices. And I had been teaching at least a decade by that point, and yet I had this opportunity to learn something totally new. So I hope it can provide that sort of prompt to more senior faculty as well.
0: Tell me about your favorite chapter. Was it Test Enhanced Learning or was it something else?
1: No, my favorite chapter is the first chapter on inclusive teaching. And that's really for two reasons one is because the ideas are so powerful right mm-hmm. so if our students don't feel like they belong in our class if our students feel like they are in an unimportant part of being there then the learning is just not going to happen so it's yeah. so important right so that's one piece of it and the other piece of it was that writing it was really helpful for me because it helped me develop my own framework for thinking about what inclusive teaching is. Um, Prior to that point, I knew that there were practices that helped, one, be inclusive, but I didn't have sort of a coherent framework that let me feel like I could adapt. So writing the chapter helped me
0: develop that. Okay, interesting that you bring that up because I what I loved about your chapter on inclusivity is that I think your framework is really unique. I've, I've read many things about steps that instructors can take to create an inclusive classroom, but you also talk about what characterizes a chilly or an exclusive classroom environment, which can you know negatively impact student learning. Tell us more about that because I think that's an interesting concept and. In particular, I'm kind of getting at that marginalizing, centralizing continuum that you describe in the chapter. You gave really good examples of of what could create a a chilly or exclusive environment.
1: I think that um, Roberta Hall and her colleagues were the ones who initially did the work that began to define our understanding of the chilly classrooms. They were looking at the experience of women in particular classrooms in the 1980s, and they found that instructors would tend to call on men's students more would tend to give more weight to men's students answers tend to give credit to men's students more frequently and so they termed that a chilly classroom for the women participants because there just wasn't the effort to see the women students as a full part of the classroom but you are talking about the continuum that was developed by desura and church so they looked at the experience of LGBT students sometime later. And through interviews with those students, they defined a continuum from marginalizing classrooms to centralizing classrooms. And there were four sort of points on that continuum. There were explicitly marginalizing classrooms where the professor would make negative comments about a particular group. There were implicitly marginalizing classrooms where students would make um, negative comments or that sort of thing about certain groups and those would go unchallenged. Yes. Uh, So both of those were marginalizing. But then there were two points along the centralizing continuum. So there were implicitly centralizing classrooms where the professor didn't intentionally make diverse viewpoints a part of the class, but when students brought it up, the professor exhibited support.
0: Oh, right? okay, yeah, right. So
1: supported questions or observations that students brought to the table. And then there were explicitly centralizing classrooms where the professor designed diverse viewpoints into the class. Now, this was hard for me to think think about initially because I thought, well, gosh, you know, I teach biochemistry. How do I do this? Jeff Shinsky's work with his colleagues on scientist spotlights was really helpful for me in seeing how one could do that in a science classroom. So these scientist spotlights are homework assignments that highlight the work of a particular scientist. There are two pieces to these. One, the scientist's work delivers some of the content that students need to get about whatever they're studying. But then the scientist's identity is also highlighted. Their identity as an Hispanic woman or their identity as a a trans man. Then the students are asked to write a reflection about both elements of that scientist spotlight. That type of assignment has really demonstrated to me how some people do and one can have an explicitly centralizing curriculum in a
0: science classroom. Yeah, I got some fantastic ideas from that discussion, so thank you. <laughs> Okay, so was there any topic, like the impact of a particular pedagogy, for example, that when you explored the literature more deeply, you were really surprised about its impact on student learning? Here's where I have to talk about test-enhanced learning, because
1: as I said, I was unfamiliar with this idea until a few years ago, and when I started reading about it, I was just simply blown away. The idea is that when we recall information, it strengthens our memory of that information, But it also enhances our understanding of it. This has been demonstrated in lab experiments and in classroom experiments across many disciplines across many years. What I really love about this observation is that the way that students do recall can vary. So they can do free recall. They can answer specific questions. They can even do multiple choice questions, and that Mm -hmm. can, can prompt that retrieval that strengthens memory. Sometimes people worry that what we're promoting is rote memory, but in fact, if you look at students' ability to make inferences by doing this, recall process Mm. they're actually improving their understanding their ability to make inferences their ability to do different kinds of work and then I have to tell you one more thing because it's my favorite part of it doing this sort of recall or retrieval practice potentiates further study so if you study subject a Uh and do retrieval practice then you will actually be able to learn subject b better that to me this is huge and amazing and such a tool to incorporate in my teaching and such a tool to give to my students to say, take this with you and use it all the time. Does that
0: then argue for more frequent testing?
1: That's a good question. I would say not in the way that most of us use the term testing. Usually when we say testing, we're talking about a high stakes process, which evokes anxiety in most of us (laughs) in one form or fashion. Um, And that's not the kind of situation where Um, retrieval practice has been shown to help. So retrieval practice is more like a formative assessment or a learning activity, where what you're doing is you're asking your brain to recall useful information, whether that is factual information or a process that you're going to use, right? It's a skill that you practice, but you're doing that under low or preferably no-stakes conditions Uh where there's no anxiety and you can get the full benefit of the learning that's happening. Frequent high-stakes testing, I don't anticipate, would have the same benefit as frequent no-stakes
0: recall. Okay. So throughout your book, you have two recurring models that you refer to, and one relates to motivation and developing a scientific identity. Can you tell us a bit more about this model and why you find it so useful?
1: I'd love to talk about this model because I find it really helpful for my own thinking. This model is based on the Connell and Wellborn self-system model for classroom motivation. It has been modified with results from Zembrin and colleagues. Basically, this model asserts that a supportive classroom environment can and does Lead to belonging, student sense of belonging, and that that belonging is a necessary precursor for the other pieces that promote student motivation. Okay. So this belonging then can precede development of self-efficacy, or this feeling that you sure. are competent within the class, and a feeling of value for the tasks of the class. Those three things: belonging, value for the tasks of the class, and self-efficacy are an essential part of what produces motivation mm-hmm. and they are essential for developing a science identity. Those things then are what allow our students to have the academic engagement and achievement that we want to see. I love this model because it helps me think about a few things. So it helps me think first of all about different ways in which I can be inclusive. When I'm trying to be inclusive, if I think about promoting belonging, Mm -hmm. promoting self-efficacy, promoting task value, those can serve to make my classroom more inclusive. It also is helpful for me in thinking about the kinds of assignments that I put in place. How can I ensure that they have value for my students, and how can I make sure that my students
0: feel competent, that they build the self-efficacy that they need to do those assignments. That's great. Little side note, aren't you stunned by how profound the emotional components of, of learning, like the affective domain of learning, how profound of an impact that can have on student performance? We, we learn more and more, and it, and it all makes sense but really it's only been relatively recently that we as scientists have been thinking about how the emotional components of learning impact what happens in the classroom. Even if you go back and look at some of the Claude Steele studies about uh, stereotype threat and how that impacts student performance, it's a really profound effect. The benefits of minimizing uh, the impact of stereotype threat a lot of times are more significant than any sort of cognitive intervention we can do.
1: Absolutely, yes. It is profound and it has been eye-opening to me over the last decade or so to recognize more and more how important it is. I think that this line between cognitive intervention and affective intervention is really fuzzy. So let's Mm. take the term active learning. So we think of active learning as being something that we're putting in place to help students do the sort of cognitive practice that they need to do. It's also often having an impact on their affect because it's giving them a chance to practice in a low stakes environment with support from their colleagues. You're also building that sense of self-efficacy and hopefully sense of belonging because of that interaction. Most of what we do touches on both
0: pieces. Yeah, at the same time. I hadn't thought about it that way, but completely agree. You also have another recurring model that is woven throughout the text of your book, and that, that relates to memory formation, which you've you've already mentioned. Did you want to talk more about that, or, sure. or just highlight so, it for our uh, listeners?
1: This model um, is built is, is the Atkinson Shiffrin um, model of memory formation. It's it's more than fifty years old, but I find it so very valuable. Basically. Um, This model asserts that we have sensory information coming at us all the time, and we have to select some of that to pay attention to in our working memory. In order for us to encode something in our long-term memory, we have to take that information that we're paying attention to and connect it to things we already know. Okay. And so it's that connection um, that lets us form this new long-term memory. And, of course, then the retrieval practice that we already talked about then can. help us form new connections, can strengthen the connections we initially made, can help us form new connections and yeah. strengthen that memory. The reason that I find this model so valuable is because I think it helps situate for me what active learning should be doing. Mm-hmm. So active learning is, are the things that we want to ask our students, the kinds of cognitive activities that we want our students to be doing to make the appropriate connections. Yeah. It helps me highlight for my students why we're doing retrieval practice. Yeah. And it also tells us what to do in a lecture. We have to help students figure out what to pay attention to.
0: Yeah. We have
1: to help them figure out how to make connections. So give them some time and space to make connections. Yeah. So it tells us what to do with educational videos. So I find the model really flexible and helpful in making me consider different parts
0: of my teaching. So where do you think the most work, or maybe the most exciting work, remains to be done? I think the most exciting work that remains to be done has
1: to do with looking at different teaching practices that have different impacts on individuals or are more or less suited to different types of learning. We know that this general category of active learning helps people learn in general, but we've only begun to parse out what types of active learning help which students and why. That, to me, is an area that's just ripe for research Um, and people are doing it, but there's a lot more to be done. I'm also really interested in this question of what different types of teaching activities help with different cognitive skills. So, we know a fair amount about that with problem solving, Mm -hmm. but we've got different types of skills that we could ask, oh, what are the things that help with this skill and that skill? Uh
0: So, since we don't have time to explore every chapter topic in your book, um, I thought I'd pick maybe a topic or two um, to ask you more about. One of them you've already addressed, test-enhanced learning, that was one, you know, that intrigued me and I, I didn't know much about. The other one that surprised me was how much is known about the design and use of educational videos. So that intrigues me too, and I total transparency, I don't really use them in my class. So (laughs) what do you know about their use and and how they enhance student learning? What are the important characteristics of educational videos that we should know about if we're going to implement them in our classes?
1: So here's what I can tell you. Students often value video as a means for learning. So we know this both from sort of anecdotal evidence from the number of our students who use Khan Academy videos, for Mm -hmm. example, Um, and we know it from a few studies. So Stockwell and colleagues a couple of years ago reported a randomized controlled trial in which biochemistry students were assigned to one of four conditions, reading before class and lecture in class, reading before class and problem solving in class, videos before class and lecture in class, or videos before class and problem solving in class. They asked Two questions. They asked which conditions helped learning more. Okay. And they found that the difference there was lecture versus problem solving. So students learned a, lot, a okay. lot more when they did problem solving in class than when they listened to a lecture. Okay. But they also asked which of these conditions most promoted student motivation and student satisfaction. And that's where they found a the difference. with. Pre class reading versus video. So students preferred the videos before class and reported higher satisfaction with this condition. What does that mean for you and me in Uh terms of whether we should use videos? I think we have to use judgment about whether using videos before class has a great enough impact on student satisfaction and motivation that we should do it, even though it hasn't been shown to have a big impact on difference in their learning. When we think about that learning, we need to think about what what we're doing with them when we're together. Yeah, okay. Okay. Now, we do know some things about what the videos should look like when we do decide to use them. That's where I feel like the research is, is pretty informative. There's a lot of work on this from Richard Mayer and from John Sweller. What it basically says is that we have to pay attention to cognitive load. When topics covered in a video are complex, as they usually are gonna be in a science class. We need to be paying attention to that model of memory formation, and we need to help our students figure out what to focus on. We need to weed out extraneous information. We need to signal what's important. We also need to keep video segments short, and we need to give the viewer control. So the ability to pause, to Uh review, to move back and forth really important. Unsurprisingly, we need to give students support to make sure that viewing the video is an active process. So give them guiding questions or give them homework related to the video so they're not just passively having information passed by them. That they're engaging with
0: it and, and trying to make the connections that they right. need to learn. Those are some of the things that we know. Okay. Great. Well, that was a really useful chapter. Last question about the book, which topics got left out? Is there another book in the works? I, I would imagine you had to do a sifting and winnowing process to, to focus, you know, so that it didn't become this lengthy endeavor. There's
1: no other book in in the works at this point. Okay. Um, I'm resting for a bit. <laughs> when I planned the book, I planned a whole section of the book on reviewing a course so after you've taught a course once what the process is that you can use to sort of review it and make it better chapters on engaging in reflection and revision Chap- a chapter on interpreting course evaluations and oh, getting yeah. really useful information out of them learning from peer observations so uh, yeah doing sort of an analysis of different classrooms that sure. you to Thinking about how to articulate your thinking about teaching in a teaching philosophy. So that sort of section in mind, but I yeah. eventually decided
0: that these topics were a bit further afield from where sure. the book ended up. But Cynthia, that does sound like another great book. Just saying, right. no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> well, the last question I have for you is one that I always like to ask each of my guests. And it's to share with us your best teaching moment.
1: My best teaching moment came a few years ago when I was teaching labs. I was at Centenary College of Louisiana, and I had developed a course-based research experience. I had been working on it for several years, been refining ways to get my students to consider conserved sequences and CK1 protein kinases and to ask what the purpose of those conserved sequences were, mm-hmm. to develop hypotheses about those to design experiments to test hypotheses and so forth. So I had really been working on this really hard for several years. This semester had gone really pretty, pretty well. I had some amazing student groups and we had a student research forum where my students were presenting their research. So there were six or eight posters from the lab. The students had done real research that was acceptable for presentation at a national conference in this credit-bearing class and I was walking around listening to all of these students explain to colleagues from around the city about their hypotheses and they felt such ownership and such Um. pride and could talk about what the results meant and I thought Wow this, wow, this is how to do it, right? Yeah. This, is, this is a great feeling Yeah. Uh, to think that these students have moved along the way to um, thinking of themselves as scientists. Yeah.
0: Oh, that's what a fantastic moment. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Brame, for being with us. This was a lovely conversation. And listeners, I wanted to point out the fact that information about Dr. Brame's book can be found in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Bauer. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've learned something new that will inform your teaching and ultimately be of benefit to your students. If you have an idea for a future show topic, please contact us at theteachinglabpodcast at gmail.com. Meanwhile, join us in two weeks when we will feature the work of another leading STEM teaching innovator.